Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you had a um, decent or moderately good or great Thanksgiving. Uh, I am extremely grateful for a lot of reasons, but I was thinking this morning of how grateful I am for uh, this church and for you all, for you all. Um, it's, uh, and it, you know, whenever you start doing that, memories come to mind, and I was, I was, I specifically remembered when we started our outdoor services. For those of you who were here for that, that seems like a decade ago. The first outdoor services feel, but it's one of those weird things too. This happens with your memory where it's like, it feels like yesterday, simultaneously a decade ago. It's really, really bizarre, but I am very thankful. We are in a series going through the gospel of Matthew, which is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but a little glimpse of the road ahead. Next week, we're going to take a break for the month of December from our series in Matthew and go into a Christmas series entitled, Why This Jubilee? And we're going to be focusing on the fact that Christians are forever and always a good news people. Even if the sky is falling, Christians are like, man, I got some good news. I got to tell you about some good news, man. Even if the sky is falling. So we'll be in that for a month, and then we'll pick up in January, continuing our series in Matthew, and specifically starting with uh, the Lord's Prayer. So a heads up, if you do not have the Lord's Prayer memorized, that's fine, but I challenge you to do it leading up to that, and we'll challenge you again in January to memorize the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew chapter 6, and if you're like, you know, you're, you're super, you're, you're awesome, you're the best, you're like, I, you know, I've been saying the Lord's Prayer since I was two, you know, the first words that came out of my mouth were our Father who art in heaven type. Uh, I challenge you to memorize the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And several years ago, like seven or eight years, I don't know how long ago, um, feels like yesterday and a decade ago, uh, we did a challenge to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and a few people did. They memorized the whole thing. So at least uh, attempt to make sure you get the Lord's Prayer memorized, and if that's too easy, do the, do the whole Sermon on the Mount. And if you're still too awesome, you do Matthew. So everyone has their challenge. So we'll be taking a break for the month of December. Also next week when we start this series, we'll be kicking off with um, something that uh, it, it's, there's debate about this, but there, there really isn't. The Christmas songs, the good ones are good and they shall be sung at church. Um, and so we're going to be doing some Christmas songs and we'll have a brass section. It'll be big and cool to kick off the Christmas season. So look forward to that. Okay. Because people always say, like, I don't really like Christmas music. I say, define Christmas music. Because there's, like, different layers of it. There's jingle bells and then hark the herald angels type of thing. And if you got an issue with hark the herald angels, man, you got an issue with baby Jesus. So um, <laughs> not my problem. Okay, Matthew. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, right out of the gate, you should be feeling a little bit of tension because Jesus is saying, do not practice your righteousness, your good deeds in front of other people. However, if you've been tracking with us just several weeks ago, Jesus said that you should be salt and light and you should be light so that when the world sees your light, they in turn would give glory to the Father in heaven. 
So Jesus says, salt and light, and you're supposed to do this so people observe it, and then they give glory to God the Father. And now all of a sudden he's saying, don't do the good things in front of people. And so there's embedded tension in the text. Now what Jesus is doing here is what he's been doing for the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. He takes some command or teaching and probes it and mines it and goes deeper and kind of goes to the, to, the, to the inner core of it. And each time he does this, what he does is he says, I'm not just concerned about the external action, but I'm also concerned about the internal motivation. So remember, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you see, you see how that adultery is an external action that's done. And in the Old Testament it said, don't do that. Jesus affirms to the fact that you should not just do the external action, but he goes further than that and goes, yeah, but you have to ex- examine the root because there's a substance, a source that leads to adultery. And that first appears just as something as subtle as, as lust. And so you have to deal with the substance and the source before it can manifest into an external action. So again, here, Jesus is concerned with the internal motivation the intent. And we know he's not saying, don't ever do anything good in front of people because all kinds of people do good things in front of people and they're actually admonished for it. What he's concerned about is the internal motivation. Do not practice your righteousness in front of people in order to be seen by them. And from here, Jesus is going to give three examples of how this was taking place in his day. The first, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, as your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, interesting. In the first sentence, Jesus assumes that his followers are giving to those in need. And as he says this, he's standing in a stream of Old Testament thought. The Old Testament is filled with verses, commands, exhortations for God's people to care for those in need. Speaks again and again and again of the orphan and the widows, the last, the lost, and the least of them. It's so important in Old Testament thought that God embeds the care of the needy into his law. Let me give you some examples. So Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So you have a field. You don't like take every last grape out of it. You leave the edges, and if stuff falls to the ground, you don't go and just take everything for yourself. You're supposed to leave a portion for the poor. And this idea is there that embedded in the law of God is that there sh- no one should ever starve as long as God's people are functioning properly. No one should ever starve. And then here's another one from the book of Exodus. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. Same principle. And this stuff is repeated again and again in the Old Testament. It's even, it even manifests in the Sabbath. So think about the Sabbath. 
Israel is delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt, and God gives them this day of rest. Now, when they were in Egypt, they had no day of rest. They were forced into labor nonstop every single day. But God puts in his, his law, in the way time works, the way ca- the calendar works, a day of rest so that no matter who you are, whether you're at the bottom or the top of the socioeconomic scale, there is at least a day where you will not be overworked. And how, how serious did God take Sabbath in the Old Testament? Like, you don't mess, like, don't, don't you go working. Don't you force someone to work on that day. It's a big deal. It's embedded into the system of time in the calendar that at least one day out of the week, you shouldn't be overworked. And so there's all these provisions, laws, commandments on how we should care for the needy so that when Jesus is speaking to the crowd, he assumes that they're caring and giving and being generous. But then he challenged them how they do it. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by other. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, it's the intent and motivation. It's not saying that every time you give, make sure to look all around so that no one sees what you're doing. And we know that's not the case because there's incidences where people give and it's observed by others and Jesus admonishes it. So there's a story of a widow who gives her last mite, the widow's mite, the last piece, and Jesus and the people see it and it's honored. But her intention wasn't like, I gotta make sure everyone's looking at me. So you see, it's not, it's not like you have to always be on guard. You're still supposed to let your light shine, but we're getting at the internal motivation. And some of you have seen examples of this, right? Where like someone does something nice or generous and it's like, at first the motivation starts off good, but then they tell the story a couple times and they notice, oh, wow, you were so generous and kind. And all of a sudden they're telling that story like four, five, six times. Then it becomes a Christmas tradition about the time I was so generous. And all of a sudden the motivation has changed. So example number one, is with giving. Second one is with praying. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jews at this time would have at minimum prayed three times a day in the morning, around the afternoon time and in the evening. They're, they're praying more than that, but at minimum, based into the rhythm of, of their days, is this morning, afternoon, and nighttime prayer. So it's a good thing, but then apparently some people are making it known when they pray. They go into special locations, maybe give louder prayers, longer prayers. We don't know all the details, but you, you for sure, like when Jesus is giving the sermon, it's one of those things he's like, you know, some of you are praying for attention. You kind of look at the crowd. You could picture the people on the mount on, when he's giving this sermon like, yeah, this guy, he always goes on. We don't even know what he's saying anymore. He just likes to hear himself talk. And so he challenges this and says, no, you pray to God. Now, again, it's not condemning prayer in public before people because there's examples in scriptures where people do that and it's given the thumbs up. Most famous example, 
Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel is told not to pray, and so what does he do? He's like, man, I'm going to post up in a very public place. I'm going to let everyone know I'm praying. And that's seen as a good thing. But his motivation wasn't to get the approval of men. His motivation wasn't the acceptance of other human beings. His, his motivation was faithfulness to God. So again, it's this, it's this mining and probing of, of, of your heart, not just the external action. This line is powerful. It's like they, they receive their reward. When they do that, don't worry about it. They'll get their reward. And what's the reward? You get acknowledged by some human beings. Some other people acknowledge you. There's your reward. Big deal. But your father knows your heart, and he knows you're not doing it for the right reasons. Now, uh, here's a little bit of a curveball. In this section, Jesus gives three examples of people demonstrating their righteousness before other people in order to get the approval of men. And when he talks about prayer, right there is when we get the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer, you can have a whole series on it. It certainly takes at least a Sunday. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over these three examples of how not to display good deeds, and we're going to remove the Lord's Prayer and begin the Lord's Prayer at the start of the new year in January. We thought it would be great to give it at least a full Sunday, and then in addition, start our new year with this emphasis on the Lord's Prayer. So if you're tracking along, don't think I'm, I'm, I'm skipping, skipping anything. We'll get, get to it in January. Now, here's the last example of not displaying your righteousness before others. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So first giving, second praying, and now fasting. So what, what, what's, what's fasting? Fasting is the stopping of eating food and or food and water for a period of time in response to some significant event. Maybe it's an impending doom or maybe this doom has already occurred, but there's this weighty event and you have a whole body response to this weighty event. Now, I'm going to say something that might be controversial, um, but it shouldn't be. It's true. Uh, but don't feel bad if you've thought otherwise. We'll clarify. Okay. Fasting is dealing with food. It's the stopping of eating food. It is not giving up social media. It's not giving up chocolate. It's not giving up talking on your cell phone. The word for that is abstaining for something for a period of time. And there's a reason why I want to emphasize this, because we want our language to match the language of Scripture. When we are talking about fasting in the biblical sense, it always deals with food for this reason. Food is a basic necessity of the human body. Like, you need it. It's a good thing. And when you fast, on the most fundamental level, you are telling yourself no to a basic human necessity. You're shutting that off. That is not the same as taking a break from social media. Now, there's, like I said, there's a, a time and a place for that. The language for that is abstaining from something for a period of time. And the Bible does that. In the scriptures, you'll encounter people 
abstaining from certain behaviors for a certain period of time, but it's not called fasting. So both are good. Like, don't feel bad if you've said, I fasted from social media, I fasted from chocolate or like whatever it may be. Those are good things and good practices, but we want our language to match the language of scripture. Fasting is the denial of the most fundamental human need, this food thing, because if you don't get it, you die. It'd be good to abstain from some other stuff, social media, whatever, TV, movies, whatever it may be, those are good practices and spiritual disciplines, but they're not the same thing. And so when you understand what fasting is in its proper context, this stuff makes sense about looking gloomy because when you deny yourself food, it may manifest itself in your physical body, right? You, you may actually look down or sad or like the color in your face not there. And so Jesus is saying, you can fast in a way that draws attention to yourself or you can fast in a way that does not draw attention to yourself. And he's saying, when you fast, like, don't emphasize, come around looking like, oh, oh. and people go, what's wrong? Nothing. Are you sure you look a little down? Well, and since you want to know, I've been fasting um, before my God. It's like, not do that. And trust me, there's tons of ways to let spiritual pride keep into fasting. When I first became ser- like really serious about following Jesus, I would fast, and I'd fast for, for a long time, long periods of time. And um, I did that so I could look down at other Christians. It wasn't rooted in righteousness. It was like, bro, you know how long I haven't, I haven't, I'm, I'm fasting, you know what day it is? Take a guess. More? More. And, and you're doing it, and it's feeding this spiritual pride, and it's like, I was doing it not to draw closer to God, but to like, Think myself righteous. This wasn't good. And so Jesus says, you want your heart, your motivation, and your intention for this stuff to be right. Now, there's a formula that now you've probably picked up on. Jesus says, when you do one of these spiritual disciplines, like give, pray, or fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. They will have their reward. But when you do these things, give, pray, and fast, do it in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So again, the point isn't to hide whenever you're doing a good deed. You let your light shine brightly so the world can see it. But your motivation is not the approval of other human beings. You're not seeking after their acceptance. You're doing this for the right reasons. Now, there's a couple things we have to address. First, this word hypocrisy. In each one of these cases, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. And so we have to ask ask ourselves, what what does Jesus mean by hypocrisy? Because the way we use the word 2,000 years removed might not be exactly the way he used it. And essentially, the word in, in Greek has to do with pretending. It was used in the theaters. So if you pretend or you're in a show, you're going you're gonna to put on a show, you're going to act, you're going to um, be something you are not, that's being a hypocrite. Now, this is, this is what's fascinating right here. Okay. Jesus is telling all these people in Galilee, don't be like hypocrites, don't pretend, don't be like the stage actors. There is a city just under four miles from Nazareth, called Sepphoris, four miles away from Nazareth. Jesus is of Nazareth. 
So very close to Nazareth, there is this city called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris would not have been a much-known city. It was just a small Galilean town. But Herod the Great's son, Antipas, wanted to make this like the capital of his region. And so he invested tons of resources into beautifying it, bringing in architectural kind of achievements and monuments. One of the things he did is he built a theater there that would sit roughly 4,500 people. This picture is of the remains of the theater in Sepphoris. So follow this. Within four miles of Nazareth and in Galilee, where all these people are hearing the Sermon on the Mount, there is this city that had these theatrical productions and plays where people would act and pretend to be something they're not. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the pretenders, the actors. Don't put on the show. Don't be like that. Now, here's something even more fascinating. This is pure speculation at this point. Pure speculation. I don't know if it's true. It has a good chance of being true, but I don't know if it's true. When Herod put in motion making this his capital, he wanted it to be, like, incredible. And he did. Uh, Josephus calls Sepphoris the jewel of Galilee. It's like the most beautiful place of Galilee. But in order to do that, he had to dump tons of resources into this place. And when you dump that much resources, you have to have a ton of labor in order to build all of these projects. Okay. In the Gospels, Joseph, and by extension, Jesus, they're often called carpenters, like that was their profession or vocation. We've talked about this in the past, but the word that's translated carpenter is tectone, and it merely means builder, someone who works with their hands. People later started thinking about carpenter because people who were working on the Bible said, well, what else are they going to work on? Well, we build things with trees. But oftentimes people, especially in, in Israel, they were building with stone and many other sources. But tectone just means builder. They're builders. Herod, four miles away from where Jesus is at, is going to build this beautiful jewel of Galilee. And he's going to need a ton of labor. It's very possible that some of the tectones that Herod would employ to build these architectural achievements were from the surrounding smaller communities. So pure speculation, but it is certainly possible that Joseph and his teenage son walked the three and a half, almost four miles to Sepphoris to work on these projects. So when Jesus says, you don't be like the hypocrites, he has an image in his mind. And even if that's not the case, the people in the surrounding region would know this term. They say, oh, we don't want to be like the pretenders, the people who put on the show, the acting. We don't want to be like that. Now, this idea of being a hypocrite or putting on a show or pretending was a temptation 2,000 years ago, and it's been a temptation for all human beings in all places and all times. But that temptation has been magnified in our current cultural moment. Where you find yourself in human history, the temptation to be a hypocrite is amplified and magnified, mostly by technology and things like social media. So for example, what social media has done is that it's allowed us to create a digital representation of ourselves. We'll call it a digital avatar. And this digital representation of ourselves is both literally and metaphorically a two-dimensional representation of it. And this representation of us is a curated or filtered 
version of us. And this thing really does exist out in the world, and it corresponds to who we truly are, but it's not identical. It, it, it by nature, becomes the, the better, more polished version of us. Let me give you a couple examples. So, um, you're on vacation. It's a, it's a great place, uh, and you want to you remember it, and so what do you do? You take out your phone, and you take a picture, right? Oh, man, it's a great picture. And then you look at it, This ain't the most flattering picture, man. Do, do I really look like that? Man, I'm getting old, man. What's going on? So what do you do? Let's, t- let's take another one. And maybe a bit better lighting, better angle, right? And so that may not seem like a big deal, but you are already within your phone, and by the certain t- that certainly by the time it gets to a-, a social media platform, you are curating who you are. You're presenting a better, a better version. And again, that is fundamentally changing the way you operate. Okay, think about this. And some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. You're too young. I, I, I was a part of this. It was dying in my childhood, but it was still around. Back in the day, if you wanted a picture, you would have to go to someplace like Kmart or Macy's. And in the back of those brick and mortar stores, there was a room. It said Photography. And you'd schedule an appointment to take like pictures or family pictures. And what happened when the pictures didn't come out good? Because you went in there, they weren't instant, they had to be developed, and then you get to see them. If the picture was bad, what happened? Better luck next year, hon. We do this thing once a year, man. We go down to Macy's or Kmart and take these pictures, and we come back next year. (laughs) Yeah, it ain't great. Put it in the hallway, not the living room. Put this one up in the hallway, man. But now that's not the way it works. You actually have immediate corrections. And then on top of that, you have filters, right? Like, and maybe not everyone is familiar with this, but, but pretty much every young person in the room is familiar with this. There's filters that you put on your face that change the way, they, they make you look better. And so, the digital representation of yourself is a curated, edited, better version of the real you. And think about this. Every time you're, you're taking a picture or you're retaking a picture, you're focusing on yourself. And that, that's neutral. I'm not saying that that's in a bad way, taking a picture is bad, but just the idea of it. Like, if you're going to take a picture of yourself, your attention is put on you, Right? For the most part, in human history, people rarely saw pictures of themselves. Maybe they looked at themselves in the water. There was some type of material, mirror-like substance in which you saw an image of yourself. But for the most part in human history, you spent next to zero time looking at yourself. We as modern people are constantly looking at ourselves, in mirrors, in photos, in pictures, whatever it may be. Now think about that for a moment. Just because of technology, you now exist in a place and time where your attention can be inward to yourself. There's a mirror. People didn't have that issue. On top of that, all of our songs, our entertainment, our media are about focusing on yourself and looking inward. 
so that all of our, like our songs, our music, our photos, our pictures, social media, teaches you to put your attention and your gaze inward rather than outward. That is fundamentally rewiring the way you interact with the world. It just is. And so this digital representation of yourself becomes the curated better version. And even more so, that version can be liked or approved of or accepted on multiple platforms so that that digital representation is getting affirmed. But most of the time, you know, deep down, like, well, that's not, that's not really me. It's a curated version. This doesn't, this is another example. This doesn't happen as much because people got made a fun of for doing it a lot. And so people kind of quieted down. If you're still doing it, fine. It's not that big of a deal. People probably talk behind your back. But like when, when Insta, say when Instagram first launched, everyone, you kind of decided what, what your, what your profile is going to be about. And so a lot of people just did like, oh, I want to show people the fun stuff I'm doing. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be on the fun stuff I'm doing. So you get like pictures of like you at a really nice restaurant, taking a picture of it, right? But then what happens? If you scroll through that feed, all you see is like vacations and really good food that you're eating. And it gives the impression that you're eating like legit food and adventuring all the time. But that's the curated filter external representation. You know, you're not putting pictures of like, woke up, here's the three eggs I ate, no filter. <laughs> like you're not doing that. It's like this, and it's like, oh man. But you don't eat like that every day. But the compressed, curated, filtered, digital representation of yourself does. This, this seeking approval and attention doesn't just happen with technology and social media. It happens in all kinds of different ways. So I'll give you an example, a personal example that pretty much every pastor wrestles with. Um, and pastors struggle with this, preaching pastors especially. Um, and hopefully in time you mature and you grow so that this isn't as big of a problem. But it's definitely a huge problem in the beginning days of people who are preaching. You want to know how good your sermon was. And so I remember always wondering, like, I wonder if people like my sermon. I wonder if people like my sermon. I remember asking my wife in the, in the early days of preaching, how, how, how was the sermon? How was the sermon? Now, the question was not, do you think this pushed people closer to Jesus? Do you think this matured? Do you think this kindled the affections of the people towards their holy God? It was, did they like the sermon? And by extension, that is a question, do they like me? Because the sermon is an, it's an external manifestation of my work. So do they like me? And it's, it's like, you could be giving sermons on a Sunday and have it be all about you. Now in time, you grow and you mature and you hope that that's not as big of a struggle. But I could tell you, I've talked to people, it's like they've been preaching for 25 years and it's still a struggle. And it's... it's it's always there. And, it, you know, for every single person, it's going to be different. For the preacher, this. For someone else, this. You might be a person pretty smart with a big vocabulary. And so in conversation, you throw in big words. There's nothing wrong with using big words. But trust me, sometimes you know you're using big words just to impress. It's like, ooh. Like, Man, we're, we're talking about grilled cheese. We're talking about it's bacon good and grilled cheese. And you just dropped... Oh, I'm sorry for my usage of polysyllabic words. I'll try to dumb it down for you. No, come on, man. Let's talk about the grilled cheese. 
You use big words to try to impress, or you exaggerate your stories, you know? Remember that time we went fishing? Man, we were catching huge fish, man. We caught like 125 fish that day, man. It was awesome. Exaggerating the story. 125 fish. You added a one to that number. (laughs) And a two. (laughs) And a five. (laughs) You can catch no fish. And so what happens is we become slaves for human approval, acceptance, affirmation. And we begin to desire it more and more. And what Jesus does is he cuts through all of it. He cuts through all of it and says, look it, do not do your deeds and acts of righteousness so that men can see. Your motivation is that your father sees and he's the one who you should be concerned about. He's the one whose approval you should be seeking. Don't seek after the approval of people. You do that, you'll have your reward. Now, it gets even more complicated because we all have different stories and backgrounds in this room. We come from different places. And so we all have different root motivations on why we want the approval of men, why we want the approval of people. And seeking to be approved of, affirmed, or loved is not a bad thing. That's a God-given desire to be known, to be loved, to be affirmed, to be accepted. But what happens is when we seek after that from mere human beings, it becomes a a perverted, distorted version of this good God-given thing, and then we can become enslaved to it. And then we're just slaves for approval. And how we were braised, our stories, our backgrounds all shape this because God put mechanisms in our life to affirm us and encourage us and help us feel accepted. So the biggest, probably most fundamental way God does that is through parents, through mom and dad. A mom and dad ought to love and affirm and encourage their children so that their children develop confidence. They know they're loved and accepted in the world. It's incredibly important. Here's the problem. That doesn't always happen. And this is why we all have different stories. Some of you didn't feel that acceptance and love and affirmation from a mom, from a dad, from both. Some of you grew up where dad wasn't around. And so you have this deficit. You're looking to be approved of because you were missing out on some of this key stuff in your early childhood. So they could think of like, we can name thousands of examples and you'll recognize them, but just a couple. So... Let's say there's, there's a young girl who father, her father leaves her at the age of three. God designed her to be loved by a father figure. She was designed to be loved by this masculine fatherly figure who affirms her, accepts her, encourages her, protects her, nurtures her. And when she doesn't get that, it leaves a deficit. So then, as that girl grows older, she might begin to seek after that masculine love and affection from other sources. And so oftentimes this manifests in in romantic relationships. And we see it all the time. Many of you, this is your story. You sought after some type of love and affection from a man because deep down you just wanted dad to love you. And you become enslaved to it because it's the perverted, distorted version of this. Or think about a a boy who dad is always hard on him. He's just always down on him. He yells. He's got an anger problem. Son's never good enough. He's never tough enough. He's never strong enough. 
That kid grows up, gets into lots of fights, violent crimes, whatever it may be. But in high school, when he picks a fight with so-and-so, you have to understand he's not picking a fight with that dude. He's fighting with his dad. He wants to show that he's tough enough, that he's strong enough, that maybe dad can be proud of him. But in reality, it's not just that he's not fighting with that guy, and it's not just that he's fighting with his dad. In that fight, he's actually crying out for the approval and affirmation and love of his father. And that deficit manifests itself in the world. And we could go countless examples. But depending upon your story and your background, we're all wanting some type of approval and acceptance to be loved and to be affirmed. And Jesus is saying, you can't get that from human beings. Like ultimately, what you really need is approval and acceptance from your heavenly father. Now, for some of you, you immediately go, oh, thank God. I know God is good and he loves me. And man, having him accept me is going to be way easier than, than all my friends, man. They're jerks. But then some of you, probably precisely because of your upbringing, you go, this sermon is horrible. You're telling me that my attention shouldn't be directed at human beings, but to God. I can't even impress human beings. Now you want me to impress a holy, almighty, perfect God? This is horrible. This is the worst news imaginable. I'm not even cool enough. The digital representation of me isn't even cool enough to get likes. And now you're telling me I have to find this from God? It's horrible. But what does Jesus do? He hints at this later in the Sermon on the Mount. But he says, no, no, no. Don't worry about the approval of men. Look to God. And then you might rightfully say, well, that's a bigger problem, man. So you may be saying, like, okay, how much do I have to pray then? How much fasting do I, since you're talking about fasting, giving to the poor, and praying, how much praying do I need? How much of these spiritual disciplines do I have to do to make this guy think I'm okay? What do I got to do to get dad to like me? Because you know what? I, I spent my whole life trying to get my earthly father to like me. What do I got to do this heavenly father? And what Jesus does is he says, don't, don't worry. Do not worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious. Don't you know your heavenly father knows the hairs on your head and that he loves you? And if he watches over the birds, how much more so would he watch over you? And you go, well, why would, why would he do that? Because I, I know actually with all the junk in my life, you know, I'm not that lovable. So you ask, what must I do to get this? And the answer of the gospel is this. You do not do anything to get that. It's already been done for you. Someone else has already done that work on your behalf. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not how many times you pray or give or fast, it's because of what Jesus has done. You were loved enough that someone else did the work for you. 
And then you are adopted into the family of God. And listen to the language. You now have peace with God. And it's not like you're sitting as a, as a loser. You're, you're standing in grace. And then it says, we rejoice. The posture of the child of God is one who stands in grace, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And out of that, then you say, God, I love you. How do, of course I want to pray to you. Of course I want to care about the needy. Of course I want to be generous. You've given me everything. See, the, the secret to all of this is the gospel. And you don't see how those connections are made because you're going like, what does the gospel have to do with not praying in front of other people so I'm not a hypocrite? It's like the gospel has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Don't seek the approval of men. Seek the approval of God. That approval has already been purchased for you. It's been done by another. And not just because, well, Jesus, he had to do it. No, no. God loved you enough that someone else did the heavy lifting on your behalf. And you were brought in and now you stand in grace and you rejoice. And now these good deeds flow from a place of joy. If you had, if you had a good father figure, you're going to get this analogy. And if you didn't, that's okay because we're all working off different deficits. But if you had a great father figure and you loved him, when Father's Day came around, you never went, oh man, no Father's Day. I want to get this guy anything. Or even maybe to a lesser degree. God, Dad, I, just, I don't know what to get him. If you had a great relationship with your father, it was so easy just for you to say, okay, what, what can we get dad? And maybe you had some siblings. What, what, can, we, what can we actually surprise dad with? Because, you know, he's kind of hard to get gifts for. It's difficult, man, but we want, we want to surprise dad. And what took place? It was your joy to want to surprise your dad because you love him. It wasn't a burdensome task. Now, again, because of the different places we come out, we approach these things differently. And so you have to go back to the gospel. Whether you were raised in a good home, a bad home, knew your mom, your dad, no parents, both parents, doesn't matter. What the Christian must go to again and again and again and again is, I don't have to do anything for this God to love me because that work has already been done by another. And by Jesus, I have peace with God and acceptance and am brought in and now I stand in victory and can rejoice. You gotta learn to tell yourself that because you will tell yourself, I'm just a loser, man. My, my parents didn't care. My dad didn't care. They, they talked down to me. They told me I was a loser. Those things could be on repeat again and again and again. Something else needs to be on repeat again and again and again. I've been justified by faith and have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. He did the work on my behalf. And now out of the abundance that he's given to me, I could let my light shine before men in a good and proper way that's God-honoring. Let's stand as we take communion. This is why uh, communion is so important and why we take it every week because it's an embodied reality. We stand and we eat something and it's not just anything. Here we remember what was done on our behalf. So when the lies go around in your head, when you feel 
like you're nothing, when you're a slave to the approval of men, when all of this stuff is confronting you, there's something that tells you otherwise. This says no to the lies and yes to the truth, the cross of Christ. So Jesus says, this is my body, take this and remember. And Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. Blood was spilt on your behalf. How much are you loved? This much. That Christ would die for you and for me, for his people. Not just to forgive us of sins, but to bring us into his fold, to his flock, and to his family. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's given us everything, and now we can enjoy, serve him. And so we take this, and we proclaim the death and resurrection of our Lord until he returns. And so, Father, we give you thanks today. We are a thankful and grateful people. We thank you that we can be free from being enslaved to the approval of men We ask that your spirit would repeat the gospel in our minds every single day, reminding us of these truths. And may we live a life that seeks to serve you and delight in you. For we are your children and you are our good father. May we fix our attention and our gaze upon you. May we take it off of ourselves and set our eyes to you. For you are worthy, you are true, you are faithful, and you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.